In Revelation 17 and verse number 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. The Bible says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. The angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose names has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and one of the seven, he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their authority or they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Now, as you ponder those verses for just a moment or two, let's pause and kind of just, let's just notice for a brief moment where we are so far in the book of Revelation. So notice how we've made our way through several chapters First three chapters, we looked at Jesus' personal messages to the seven churches of Asia, the primary targeted audience when the book was originally written. We then saw a glimpse into heaven. We saw into heaven and we saw God on his throne being worshipped and we saw Jesus being worshipped. And he's portrayed as the, as the lamb and the lion. We saw chapter six and when the first seven or the first six seals were broken. And these seals basically tell the story of Revelation and how God's will is going to be accomplished on the earth. We then got the interlude in chapter 7 and we saw the fate of God's people is disclosed. God tells his people he's going to take care of them. He's going to watch over them while he exercises his judgment. In chapters 8 through 9, we saw the, the seven trumpets and how those represented warning judgments. God's trying to give Rome a chance to repent. But in chapter 10, we see they would not repent. So no more warring judgments. Judgment, full judgment is coming. And then in chapter 11, we saw the, the, the vision of the two witnesses, which basically revealed the outcome to the war, how God was going to crush his enemies. Chapter 15, we see another interlude where God 
tells his people that while he's going to exercise judgment against their enemies and against the enemies of his kingdom, they're going to experience victory. Now, they may suffer on the earth. They may even die for the cause, but they're going to receive ultimate victory in heaven. And then chapter 16, what we studied for a couple of classes, God's full judgment is now being executed. The bowls of wrath, the seven bowls of wrath are being unleashed. They're being poured out on God's enemy. And then we get to the part of the book where the enemies that we were introduced to as early as chapter 12, they start going down one by one. The harlot, the two beasts, and then ultimately the red dragon. Now I'm just going to put up here for you, this is going to be up here to a whole class for you. If you want to jot this down, you can. But this is how I think the chapter is ultimately broken up, uh, chapter 17. So I'll just leave that up there for you. And you can kind of just look at that. And if you want to jot some notes down, that'll be there for you. Here in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to read about the demise of the harlot. Now, remember, the harlot here in this part of the book does not represent a specific individual, but instead it represents an aspect of the enemy of God's people, the immorality of the empire. That's what it represents something. It represents an aspect of the enemy or an attribute of the enemy. Now, when you get to chapter 19, Chapter 19 is going to then talk about the demise of the beast and the false prophet. And all these things are part of the same entity. They're just telling you about various aspects or characteristics of that entity. When you get to chapter 20, the main enemy of the book, which is who? Satan. He goes down. We read about God defeating Satan and in an ultimate sense when you get to the end of that chapter. Now, let's talk a little bit about the harlot that is mentioned here in Revelation 17. In Revelation 17, in verse number one, the Bible talks about the harlot. It mentions the harlot. Now, when it comes to harlotry and immorality, the Bible speaks of two kinds. Have you ever noticed that? There are two kinds of harlotry or adultery that is described in the scriptures. There is the kind that we studied in Romans chapter one. The kind that Paul talks about. Now, what kind of immorality does Paul talk about in Romans 1? We studied that several weeks ago. Physical. Physical harlotry, physical immorality, physical adultery. Remember, Paul makes a list of all the things that men get involved in that are against God's will. And the interesting thing about that is he's writing to the church in Rome. And we have made the case that the enemy or the henchman of Satan at this time is Rome. And so Paul mentions adultery, and he mentions fornication, and he mentions homosexuality, and he talks about how people, people get involved in these things, and people were involved in those things 2,000 years ago. What we're seeing today is nothing new. This is not, there's nothing new under the sun. And so Paul talks about the physical harlotry and adultery in Romans 1, but there's another kind that is mentioned in the scriptures too. And that kind is mentioned often in the prophets. It's mentioned in Isaiah, it's mentioned in Jeremiah, it's mentioned in Ezekiel. I want you to go in your Bible to the book of Hosea, the little prophet of Hosea. Look at Hosea chapter one, the little prophet of Hosea. Hosea chapter one. Hosea is a very interesting book. Uh, it's a book that'll, that'll break your heart in many cases when you think about what God put Hosea through, or what Hosea had to go through to accomplish God's will. 
Uh, so in Hosea 1 and verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Barry, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So what does God have Hosea do here? Where God has Hosea live a life of an example. He has to live his life as an example of Israel. He marries a woman who's unfaithful to him. He, he marries a woman who's a harlot. She cheats on him, and not only does she cheat on him, but she cheats on him to the point to where she has children with other men. So God is telling Hosea to do this. Put yourself through this. I command you to do this because I'm going to teach my people something through your life. And what was God teaching Israel through Hosea's life? Somebody tell me. Spiritual in what sense, uh, uh, Peggy? That was the point. Hosea's physical example was going to teach a spiritual lesson. And the spiritual lesson was, is just like Hosea's wife was unfaithful to him, God's people, his bride, was being unfaithful to him, but in a spiritual sense. So the heartbreak that Hosea would have felt with his wife cheating on him and having illegitimate children, that's how God felt. That's the point. And God does this often. Uh, I think you had a lesson several months ago that Brother Brian taught from Isaiah, where Isaiah was told to, you know, preach naked, basically. That's God, again, using a prophet's circumstance to teach a spiritual lesson. God often does that with his prophets. Does it with Jeremiah, does it with Ezekiel. So that's what you got going on here. The Bible speaks of physical adultery and spiritual adultery. Now, let's look at this a little more carefully here. This great harlot in verse 1 is described, in ver and I'm going back to Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation 17.1. This great harlot is described as sitting on many what? Well, from y'all's study of this, and may, I hope you've studied the chapter some ahead of time, what do you think the many waters represents? The harlot sitting on many waters. Yes, yes. Verse this is, and I and I asked that question, uh, Gary. Was you going to say? Was you was you going to make the same point, sir? Um, I may I asked that question, Rick, was because this is one of those examples I believe when it comes to this symbolic language where we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess as to what it means because the scripture tells us. In verse fifteen, we learn that the waters represents peoples multitudes, nations, and tongues. So this is the world. So I think the idea here is the immorality of, the, uh, of, of what's going on here is impacting everybody. The whole world is immoral at this time. Doesn't that remind you of other places in the Bible where m the vast majority of the world was wicked? Reminds me of Noah. Doesn't it remind you of Noah a little bit? And, and I think that's the idea here. This harlot 
is impacting the whole world, multitudes, tongues, nations, the whole empire. These people are involved, if you look at the verse carefully, in great harlotry. The word great is there. You see that? And I think this represents both physical and spiritual. Physical and spiritual. Paul talked about the physical stuff in Romans 1. He lays that out for us. Uh, you know, that, that's what's going on. Okay? But the book here, Revelation, talks about the spiritual aspect of this when it mentions the false prophet, the enemies, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, what does the false prophet represent? The false prophet. It represents the people are involved in what at this time? What are they doing? What's the main thing we've been emphasizing? The emperor worship, the false worship. See, when people engage in false worship, they break God's heart. And it is a form of spiritual adultery, especially when Christians, the bride of Christ, are involved in it, which could have been going on with many Christians at this time. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that all the Christians are being loyal to God at this time. There's some who've probably caved in, okay? There's some who probably are trying to protect their jobs and protect their families in a physical sense and even protect their lives. Let's not think everybody's like Antipas at this time in Revelation 2 where they're going to die for the cause, okay? Are all Christians faithful today? Do you think it would have been any different 2,000 years ago? Come on. So there's some people involved in spiritual adultery at this time. And, and let me just say something about that. The spiritual adultery. When one is unfaithful to God, okay, is that something that exists today? Can Christians today be guilty of spiritual adultery? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. This is a sin that's going to plague God's people until the Lord comes back. Spiritual adultery is simply when we put something else above God, when we're not loyal and faithful to God. When we're involved in idolatry, when we say idolatry, we're not just talking about bowing down to little statues and things. We mean anything we put before God. Anything we put before God becomes an idol. You understand that, don't you? Anything we put before worshiping God, seeking God's will, whatever that may be, we can give a, a hundred things as a, as a quick list of those things. That's spiritual adultery. And there are a lot of people involved in that today. There may even be some people who are involved in that, who are among us tonight. I don't know. I can't read people's hearts. That's something we got we to gotta examine ourselves on. That's between us and the Lord on that. So you, 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 you have harlotry taking place. I think physical and spiritual. But in verse 2, we see that she influenced, I'm going back to Revelation 17, verse 2. The scripture says that she influenced many to drink from her cup. You see that? Many are drinking from her cup. Through emperor worship, many people, even Christians, are disobeying the Lord. This idea of not worshiping anything but God, this goes back to the, to the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten the Commandments was what? You worship God and you worship God alone. This is a big deal here. This is something worth dying on the battlefield for. And there are some who are caving into this. Now look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 
And then I'll give you a chance to maybe make some comments because you may have some things you want to say. In verse 3, this harlot is ascribed to us. What, what do you notice about her appearance? Somebody tell me some things you notice there in verse 3. What is she sitting on? She's sitting on a scarlet beast, right? Why do people sit on beasts? And I'm talking in a physical sense today. Like those pe you know, people who ride beasts. Why do people sit on beasts? That's power, isn't it? When you sit on a beast, who's in control? Who's supposed to be in control at least? <laughs> who's in control? The rider. That's right. The rider is the one who's in control. The rider is the one who is guiding and navigating the beast. So you have this connection between the harlot and the beast. They're connected. And I want to suggest that there's no doubt that this beast here is the same beast. This is the same beast that we've been learning about all you know, the last couple of months. And let me tell you why I say that. I want to show you some similarities between this beast and and the other beasts or the beast that's mentioned in other places. They're the same thing, but look at Revelation 13. Now keep your finger, Revelation 17. Keep your finger there, but look at Revelation 13 and 1. Revelation 13 and verse 1. When we're first introduced to the beast, the beast that's coming out of the sea, out of the sea it says, and the dragon, we know that's Satan, he stood on the sand of the seashore, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. So he's got knowledge and he's got power. He's got authority. Ten complete, seven, another, another a number of completeness. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And look at Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Look at verse number uh, three. Revelation 17, three. And he carried me away in the, in the spirit. So notice John is in the spirit here. This is not physical. This is spiritual. Okay. Into a wilderness. And I saw in the spirit, keep in mind, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast having uh, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Same idea. You see it? It's the same thing. Go back to Revelation 13 again. Revelation 13, this time look at verse 7. Verse 7, all those who dwell on the earth will worship him, going to worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world, of the world in the book of life, in the book of the life of the lamb who has been slain. Now go back to Revelation 17 again. Look at verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So there that is again. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. There that is again. Will wonder when they see the beast that was and is not and will come. Same language. Same people in allegiance to the beast. You see that? Let me give you one more example here. Revelation 13 again. Revelation 13. Now remember verse 8. It talks about those who dwell on the earth. 
make sure I get this right here. No, I'm sorry. Go back to Revelation 17. I, I said that wrong. Forgive me. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. It talks about these will wage war against the lamb. The lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And those who are with him are the call and the chosen and the faithful. Now, that, that ties back to Revelation 13 and verse 7 where it says, look at Revelation 13, 7. It was given to him to make war with the saints. That same language. War with the saints again. That's what I was trying to say there. War with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. The point I'm just trying to make is when you when you cross reference or look at these two chapters together, 13 and 17, you see the same language. That's the point I'm making. So I believe this is the same beast. These things are connected. These are the political power of Rome and the immorality of Rome being used as a vessel for Satan. I think that's the idea. At least that's my understanding of it. The harlot and the beast are working together. That's the idea. So let me pause there because that was a lot I said there. Does anyone have any comments about what we looked at so far? Because we only looked at the first three verses, but it's a lot going on there. Anything at all, please feel free to anybody. Brother Gary, go ahead, sir. Yeah. Yes, they are. They are drunk. I, I think that's a strong term there that's being used there. They're, I mean, they're in complete. They're under the complete influence of this and they're allowing this to take place. I think that's a uh, that's a good point. They're drinking this. Uh, that that is a, that is an excellent, excellent point. Uh, anyone else comment? Brother Ryan and then Brother John after that. Go ahead, sir. Full of dead men's bones. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. The, the Pharisees, and that's really the thing to see here, is the corruption. It really, all of this really starts with the heart. And that's what Jesus and his teaching ultimately was trying to cut off a lot of times is don't just focus so much on the outside. you got to focus on the inside first. Because if you clean the inside up, the outside naturally will follow. And the Pharisees may have looked the part with all the phylacteries and the gold things that they had, but, but in the inside they were full of dead men's bones. They were immoral, and, and even sexually immoral in some senses. I think in much of Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about, you've heard that it was said you should not uh, commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Then he goes on to talk about how you can't put your spouse away just for any reason. It's got to be for unchastity. He's taking shots at the Pharisees with all of that. Because the key verse there is verse 17, I believe, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of these men, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these men, like, you, like you're saying, they're immoral. They're not just corrupt men with the things they do, but they're corrupt here in many ways. So that, that's, an excellent, that's an excellent point. Brother John, you had something to say, sir. They're all together. That's an excellent observation. Uh, even with the colors, we connect them together. Absolutely. Brother Dunn, yes, sir. One of the things that amazes me about this portion is it is in such a synoptic view of the entire book of Isaiah. You know, 
when you when you look at chapter one, verse twenty-one of Isaiah, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Here's the place where God caused His name to be, and you have made it a city of harlots. Yes. You have you've made the whole thing a harlotry rather than worship of God. Yes. And then you go through the entire progression of the degradation of Israel, right? Finally, to destruction by Babylon. Yes. Yes. Now you're using the harlot Babylon who would be eventually in time yeah we see the city but here we see the whole scheme a whole yes it's the same idea of being destroyed and 66 chapters condensed into two chapters yep no that that's exactly right the same same idea different players but same thing same story being told uh, so very good everyone let's now move on to verses four through five the woman is described in more detail She's described as clothed in purple. Purple is usually a symbol for what in Bible times? Yeah, royalty. So this is someone of royalty here, right? She's adorned in, in other things of royalty too from her jewelry. I mean, you see all that there in the text. But the thing I really want to focus on is her cup, the cup she has. The cup is full. You see that? And that's the key thing I think you really got to focus on here. It's full of what? abominations and unclean things. This, this alludes back to what we've studied in previous classes about how her sins are full. Full. The cup is full. The immorality is full. The harlotry, the adultery, it's all full. This empire is totally gross. It's totally out of whack. It's out of step with the will of God. I think even history confirms that when you study carefully the Roman Empire. This is exactly what was going on. Now, she's got some on her forehead. A name is on her forehead. What's the name on her forehead? Babylon the what? Babylon the Great. Why Babylon? Because Babylon's been gone for a long time by this time, right? Why Babylon? Why is she called Babylon, you think? What have you studied on that? Why is she called Babylon the great. Why is that name on her head? She's going to suffer the same thing. Yeah, Lance, oh, I didn't even see you, this, you, I even, man, you out of place tonight, man. <laughs> oh, I got you. <laughs> no, that's right, Mitch. That's what I wrote down, Mitch. She's going to receive the same judgment, the same judgment from God. Like Babylon was never rebuilt, mind you, right? She's never going to be rebuilt. She will never be a world empire again. I think that's the idea. It is that Old Testament Babylon being used to emphasize what's going to happen with Rome. She will be de destroyed, never to be rebuilt. She's going to receive judgment from the same God for her, for her sins. Brother James, yes, sir. And then Lance after that. Yes. Babylon, and Babylon, that's most false religion. And that's what's going on here, false religion, right? Uh, very good. Uh, Lance. For me, Lance, I would say it's a stretch. And the reason why I say that is because of the text don't, doesn't say that specifically. 
just for me, I, I don't like making assumptions like that. Right. No, that's a good that's a good point. I for me, I think, and I think Mitch hit it on the head. I think it's called Babylon because of the fate this kingdom is going to suffer. It's going to be the same as Babylon, the Babylon that these Christians would have certainly been familiar with because of their familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Brother Don, yes, sir, then we'll move on. Yep, that, and that's, it's the same idea. It's exactly. a, uh, Brother Gary, yes, sir. Real quick, Jeremiah 51, uh, verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nation is going to man. That's a good verse. That something that they would recognize. What's that verse again, Jeremiah what? Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Jeremiah 51 and verse 7. That's a good verse there. Uh, that 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 man, you can't help but think about this when you read that verse. So, I, and, and that's a good point because I think with Babylon, there's a reason why God is inspiring John to use Babylon here. We're not talking about the literal Babylon, but there is something where the readers here would have immediately thought about when they when they saw that. Uh, so that that's a that's a point well received there. That's a good point. Okay, so. Babylon the Great, she's going to be brought down. She's never going to be rebuilt. Never going to be rebuilt. She's also called a mother here. Did you notice that? She's a mother of what? What do you see going back to Revelation 17 again? And we're looking at about verses 4 and 5. What is she a mother of? She's a mother of harlots. So we're talking about harlotry at the highest degree. And it's interesting here how some other things are, are brought out here in verse 6. This woman has been drunk with what? The blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. What does that mean? What, do you, what is that talking about? She's drunk with the blood of the saints and of the witnesses of Jesus. Yes. This is persecution. This, this, see, a lot of this stuff, is, this is nothing new. This is the same stuff we've been studying. This is part of the great theme of Revelation, how Christians, because they won't commit spiritual adultery, they're being killed. They're being persecuted by the beast. And the harlot is involved in this. And so this woman, which is an aspect of Rome, represents an aspect of Rome, is guilty of killing God's people, those who preach the witnesses of Jesus, those who are loyal to Jesus, the people of God, saints. She has been drunk with the blood of the saints. This means that a lot of Christians have died at this time. There's a lot of them dying. That's something that, that needs to be emphasized there. So we have Christians who are dying, and, this, and, and Rome is involved in this. Now, verse 6 says, as John is looking at all of this in the spirit, how does he respond? What do you think about John's attitude in verse 6 as he sees as he sees? All of what's going on with this woman on the beast, this heart on the beast, and what she's doing with the cup in her hand and being drunk with the blood of the saints, what does that cause him to do? How would you describe his attitude there? He's marveled and amazed. Now, when you marvel and amazed, marveled and amazed in what way? He's confused. 
That's exactly what's going on. I think he's confused here. And the reason why I think he's confused by what he's seeing is because of what the angel comes and says to him next. What does the angel come up and do? He says, I'm going to help you understand this stuff because you, you're confused. <laughs> you, you're, you're perplexed, as I would have been, as all, we all would have been seeing this kind of stuff, right? So look again at what the angel said in verse 7. He says, why do you wonder? Why are you confused? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So John is puzzled by all of this. He's at a point in the book where he just doesn't get what's going on here, but an angel, a servant of God, says, I'll help you. I'll help you understand this a little bit better. You know, it, 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 it reminds me of things we see in the Old Testament, particularly with Daniel. And I'm going to say more about that in just a second. Look at verses 8 through 13. In verses 8 through 13, the judgment is pronounced on the beast. You see verse 8? He says, the beast that you saw was and is not. He was and is not. And it's about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. This beast that you're seeing here, it will be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. He will meet, meet judgment. The beast here is portrayed as both having power, but he's also going to lose power. You see that? He has power. He will lose power. His demise, when you look at verse 8 very carefully, is going to cause many on the earth to wonder. They're going to wonder. They're going to look and see this beast, this powerful beast meeting destruction. They're going to wonder about what they see concerning his destruction. That's going to perplex them. Now, why would this be perplexing? Why would those who serve the beast, those whose names are not in the book of life, why would they be perplexed by this? He had, had great confidence in him. He had great power. And, and, and when you look at him, you would think, who can stop him? And isn't that what Rome was all about? I mean, has there really ever been a world power stronger than that empire? So if you're living at that time, and especially if your trust is not in God, you look at this massive empire that's dominated the whole world, won so many military victories, has so much wealth and glory, you would never think something like that would ever go away. That there would ever be a time when that empire was not in control of all things. This is going to perplex the world when they see the demise of this enemy. It reminds me of Daniel. Now, I, say, I mentioned Daniel. Let's go back to Babylon a little bit. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar was on the roof of his palace in Daniel 4? Remember that? He was on the roof of his palace in Daniel chapter 4. And what, did he, what, was, he, what was he doing on the roof when he looked at his Quote, at his quote-unquote kingdom. What was his attitude like on the, on the palace? He was so proud of himself. He said, look at what all I have done by my power, by my glory, by my might. And God humbled him. God, God cut him down. God got him to the point to where he was looking like an animal, acting like an animal, eating grass like an animal. And then he eventually acknowledged God. So Babylon was a strong empire. Didn't last as long as Rome, not even close by 70, 80 years at the, at, at the most. It didn't last long at all, but it was strong. Now, imagine Daniel, you know, he gets taken into captivity by the Babylonians. He goes into captivity maybe as a teenager, maybe 13, 14, 15, 
something like that. And in Daniel 2, he sees a vision from God. Some of y'all may, somebody may, I think Lance may reference to it. And he sees this big statue. And every part of the statue represents a world empire. And the head is Babylon. Babylon's the head. And at the end of the vision, when it's interpreted for him, and when he interprets it for Nebuchadnezzar, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that the, the head of the statue is one day not going to be strong. It's going to be gone. Babylon will not be dominant anymore. Can you imagine how that must have made Nebuchadnezzar feel? Can you imagine how that must have made Daniel feel when he learned this from God? And he's been taken from his homeland by these people. And these people have taken God's people into captivity. And they're dominant and they're strong. And God is telling him, no, no, no. They're not going to be strong forever. They're going to go down one day. It's easy to get sucked into the moment, isn't it? It's easy to even look at our country in which we live. And we look at our prosperity and our strong military and how everybody looks to us in this world for everything. It's hard to imagine a day when America could be no more. Isn't it hard to imagine that today? I know it is for me. But God rules in the kingdoms of men, doesn't he? He rules in the kingdoms of men. And I'm just, I, I think about, you know, John here and these people in Rome and Daniel and even our pe people today and how it can be easy to look at all these things with the physical eye and think there's no way, there's no way this stuff could be no more. But John is being told in Revelation, just like Daniel, no, Rome is going to go down. And when it goes down, people, people are going to be amazed. They're going to be amazed that something this strong could cease to exist. So let me stop right there. Does anyone have any comments on that, on this part right here? John is being told Rome, Rome is going down and the world's going to be amazed when they see this. Anyone else have a comment or anything about that? Brother Don, is that your hand up there? Just, just a quick note. At this time and shortly thereafter, Rome starts to lose in Gaul and Britannia. The, the, the scene is already set, and the nation is already rising in two places to bring that defeat from the north to the south. Yes. And Hadrian's Wall will not stop it in another hundred years. So you're talking about there the outside invasions. The, outside the military. Invasion yes. Which is the sixth cup, the sixth, the sixth uh, cup that's poured. Before we close, I got a couple of minutes here. Revelation, look at verse 9 of chapter 17. Revelation 17, 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, Mitch, I'm sorry. I, didn't, I was trying to work hard to get, to get some of this done. I, I left you with the real hard stuff. I love I did, bitch. I was moving real slow on purpose, dog. No, I had a lot of I had a lot more to say, bitch. But uh, in verse nine, I'll just say this about verse nine. You see the seven mountains there that are mentioned. I'll just say this. Rome actually did sit on seven literal mountains or seven literal hills. So that, that that's interesting right there. That's interesting. But remember, John is in the spirit here, right? He's in the spirit. And so I don't take this to represent literal mountains. Instead, I think when you continue to study the context, all of this represents kings. Kings, some even say kingdoms. I lean more towards kings. But I, I'm not dogmatic either way. 
I'll say this about the next unit, okay? That's a it's a tough unit. It just is. I've been studying it all day, and, and I still can't have my mind made up on it. I just can't. It's tough. It's a tough unit. Scholars have been debating how to number these kings that you see in the, rest of the, in the next couple of verses. They've been debating that for a long time. Uh, some say it's a reference to literal emperors, but even when they start going down that path, they don't know where to start. Do we start with Caesar? Do we start with Augustus? You know, where do we start here? And what about the ones that didn't reign that long? Do we cut them out? Do we put them in the list? Scholars are, have been debating that for a long time. I'll just ask you to do this, and Mitch will probably do the same thing. Remember what the number seven represents. Remember the numbers and what they represent. Seven represents what? in Revelation. You got to remember that completeness. Maybe this just represents the totality of Rome's rulers and rule and how God is basically just saying that yes they're going to have some power, they've had power, they're going to have it for a little bit longer but eventually, eventually I'm going to prevail. Verse 14 my dear friends, if you don't mark any other verse in Revelation you mark verse 14. That is a key verse regardless of how we interpret chapter 17 and what the king who the kings are in the numbers remember this verse 14 tells you whoever you say it is they're going to lose they're going to lose to king jesus christ so just remember that okay remember verse 14. we'll stop right there brother mitch is going to pick up um in the second part of that chapter on 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 sunday Lord, will. you're not, Mitch, not going to do it. <laughs> okay, Mitch, Mitch going to start where he wants to start on, on Sunday. Thank you. <laughs>